Tired of ads interrupting your favorite show? Good news. Ad-free listening on Amazon Music is included with your Prime membership. Just head to amazon.com slash ad-free fitness to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Enjoy thousands of ACAST shows ad-free for Prime subscribers. Some shows may have ads. So, how do we get AI right? Well, we need the right volume of data, the software to train it, and massive compute power, or... Another one bites the dust. Are you ready? Hey, are you ready for this? Are you hanging on the edge of your seat? But with HPE GreenLake, we get access to supercomputing to power AI at the scale we need, helping generate better insights. All right. Nice teamwork, guys. Search HPE GreenLake. Hello and welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Donahue, and ever since I was little, I've been obsessed with books. So I started the show to interview authors and those behind the book so that we can learn not just why they mean something to us, but where they come from. Welcome to episode three of the Secret Library podcast, and I'm very excited. We've had two authors on so far, but today we're going to go in a slightly different direction. Um, I have insisted <laughs> my friend Sam Potts, who's a multidisciplinary designer, who is nevertheless undisciplined about staying on a narrow design path. Those are his words, not mine. Um, but I really wanted to have Sam on because he has done so much work about the design and the process of the physical experience of the book rather than the writing. It's like when you look at a book, and one of his books, which is New Literary History of America, which some of you may remember from a few years ago. I didn't even know Sam yet, and I knew I had to have that book. The cover is so beautiful. I'm going to put, um, I'm going to put a picture of it in the uh, post about it. But the design of a book, I think many of us pick books like we pick wine. Like when the cover is really good or when the label is really good, we think, oh, that must be, that must be a good book. And so Sam has all kinds of other experience. He has done uh, user experience. He did the first New York Times native iOS crossword app, which is so awesome because I don't know if the world knows about my secret crush on Will Shorts, but I'm a pretty big fan of the New York Times crossword. Um, and then from 2002 through 2009, he operated Sampot Inc., which was an independent graphic design studio in New York City. And he did a lot of great projects in that period that include Brooklyn Superhero Supply Company, an original identity for 826 NYC, which is the tutoring center founded by Dave Eggers. People in Los Angeles who may be listening will know about 826 LA or 826 Valencia in San Francisco. Um, Sam did three books by John Hodgman, an expert in all knowledge, who also does a very cool podcast. Um, he's done... Two websites for John, oh my God, how do you say his last name, Sam? Sheska. John Sheska, that's awesome. <laughs> S-C-I-E-S-Z-K-A, other poor man probably has to spell his name all the time. He's the U.S. Ambassador for Children's Literature, which is possibly the coolest job I could think of. Um, and Sam has a complete identity system for the IFD Center, the independent film channel's flagship movie theater in New York. Um, he's currently in L.A., which is really great for those of us in L.A., and works as a user experience designer. Um, he's worked as a designer at I IDEO, Eric Baker Design Associates, and Simon & Schuster Publishers. And he was on – you're so fancy, Sam. He was on the uh, 2007 to 2009 board of AIGA New York. He taught graphic design at the School of Visual Arts, Cooper Union, Art Center College of Design. He is more proud of his uh, students' successes than his own, which is very sweet. And his work has been featured in books focusing on graphic design, infographics, and entrepreneurialism. That's awesome. So we're very lucky to have you, Sam. Um, Thank you. Also, on a separate note, for anyone who's into bicycles, Sam is currently designing bicycle frames. Um, and I'm very lucky to be a beneficiary of a future bicycle frame. So I'm just putting that out there if anyone is into bicycle design as well. Um, but thank yeah, you for coming. Nice. I really love the design side of books because I'm a font geek and I just want to know more about the process of, you know, an author writes the words, but the way the words look and the way the reader experiences the words is all up to the designers. So at what point does the design get involved in the book process? I guess we'll start at the very beginning. Okay. Uh, 
Uh, that we will. Thank you for that uh, <laughs> lovely introduction. Um, so this is all based on my experience of having worked at Simon Schuster in the design department. Uh, and mm -hmm. in publishing companies, it's interesting to note that the design department it handles the interior of the book, the text, and the art department handles the cover and the jacket. And Got it. I always thought it was interesting terminology that one is art and one is design. Um, yeah. But uh, so in the design department, you every every season at a publisher, you have a, a list of titles that, that has been it's been decided these are the books we'll publish, and so those that list for each season comes down to both the copy editing department and the design department as manuscripts. And in the old days, it used to be you know printed out stacks of paper. Now it's probably just the Word document being transmitted. Uh, and what happens on a parallel track is the manuscript gets copy edited by a copy editor, and that's for house style and consistency and spelling and all that stuff. And it also gets structured hierarchically so that, you know, the copy editor is the one who decides this is a chapter title, this is a subhead, this is a pull quote, this is a footnote. Mm. And they, they, make all of that consistent throughout the manuscript. And that's very important okay. for design because what's happening on a parallel track is the designer is getting that list of all those elements in the text and then accounting for them typographically on the page with, with actually what the book will look like. So the designer relies on copying to tell them, you know, we need we need pull quotes, and we've got some poetry extracts, and we need, you know, an index, and bibliography, and all the different, you know, little atomic particles that go into a manuscript. Uh, so the designers, starting with that list, and then also starting with, um, this is strange, but it's so important, they start with a page count. And that's, oh, yeah. um, that's a financial consideration. The, the, you know, the production department, you know, when they decide to publish a book, they say, okay, well, this is going to be a 540-page book or this is going to be a 325-page book. Um, I used to know the numbers, but they're very specific numbers because they're multiples of 16 because of the way books are printed in signatures, uh, little bundles of folded pages. So, right. so the publisher has decided or has allotted a certain amount of pages for a given manuscript, and that's a budgetary concern, and that plays into how many copies they're printing, etc. And so the book designer's job is to make the manuscript fit the page count. <laughs> that's oh, God. Almost the number one job. I mean, that, you, can't, you can't fail at that. You have to make your design work within your page count. Um, so that was it's sort of it's a very technical aspect, which I guess is why it's design and not art. But uh, once once you're sort of working with a page that will that will produce the proper page count, and by that I mean you're working with a full page of text that has um, what you're doing is you're you're establishing the margins around the page mm -hmm. and the number of lines of text on the page and the number of characters in a line, and therefore the number of words on a page, that's how you figure out the page count. So you, you use the page count as your end goal, and you work back from that to get the proper number of characters on a page of text. And once you have that, then you can kind of be creative with how you style the typography. Um, so, you know, you can only have type that's if, you, if you're trying to squeeze a long book into a short page count, you can only have type that's so big. And that will right. change kind of the feeling of the design. Um, you'll also see, you know, by the same token, you see a lot of books that people are, the publishers are trying to stretch <laughs> from short books <laughs> into long books. Um, right. And those are the books you're like, wow, I can't believe I read a 200-page book in half an hour, but that's yeah. actually a 60-page book. Um, and... You even have, I mean, this is an embarrassing example because I'm a huge fan, but that David Foster Wallace uh, commencement speech, This is Water, that, that yes. I think Little, Little Brown published as a book, is I think one sentence per page. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. He did so it that's to the whole yeah. Yeah. I know. I love that speech too. I'm really sad that I, he did it at Kenyon, which was my mm-hmm. alma mater, and I'm still sad that that wasn't. I, I graduated a number of years before. I was like, that would have been mm-hmm. the best graduation speech ever. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that they, you know, they had to stretch it, and the designer yeah. clearly tasked with, you know, let's get this to however many pages long that book is, and the solution was not to print it normally and then have a lot of blank pages or filler, it was just to stretch out the text, you know, a certain number of words per page. So, yeah. um, so again, not to get too technical, but you're trying to fit your manuscript into a certain page count, and that ultimately plays out in how much text you have on a single page. Um, right. And a lot, of, a lot of the job is is the interplay between the margins and the type size and the number of lines on a page, yeah. all that stuff you're kind of tweaking to get the book to fit. And you're also then, I mean, that's the technical side, and that's, I would say, 60 to 70%, maybe 75% of the job of an interior designer. And then you're also Oh, that's trying. funny. They're called interior designers? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean... As in the book world, that's designer. different because it's completely different than you know a house interior designer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It always it always sounds a little strange, but when I was working at Simon Schuster and I would tell people that I designed books, they of course assumed I was designing jackets because nobody even realized that books were designed on the interior. Um, right. So you know people would say, oh, "I've never sounds- had any." Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't. But of course, I mean, it's not just like you know a word document slammed in there. I mean, and it sounds very much like, in some ways, that tension, I don't know if you were the kind of student who played this game, but, um, you know, you had a paper due, and mm-hmm. I had the problem where my short papers were always too long, and my long papers right. were too short. So, of course, then you start messing with the margins, and you start less, and you're like, maybe I can do, yep. you know, <laughs> double space instead of 1.5, and maybe they won't notice that it's century gothic. Century gothic is like throwing in the towel. You know, for yes, for yes. making the book bigger. So, do you a, is there are there fonts like Century Gothic and in Interior Design where you're like, oh man, we got to stretch this thing out. We're going to make it. You know, was there like a font list like that that you had to play Absol- with? Absolutely, it's exactly that <laughs> process actually, except that you just paid for it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, way uh, this is a little sidetrack, but when I was at Simon Schuster, this was in the mid '90s. It was just at the transition to the Macintosh. And we had one designer in our department named Edith Fowler who did not use a computer. And she designed, yeah, she was amazing. She did all of our massive political nonfiction books like the Bob Woodward books. And Uh they're like all 600 pages. And she designed it, you know, figuring out how many words per page she needed and then figuring out which typefaces would give her that page count because, exactly as you say, some typefaces are wider than others. And right. that's just the way they're designed. And that's a big, that's a big thing that you get a feel for as a, as a book designer is, you know, uh, I've got a, not only which ones are narrow and wide, but also which ones read better at small sizes or big sizes. Uh, there's you know a couple technical type type considerations that affect that. Um, yeah. And so you you kind of this is kind of what you're doing when you design a book. You're like saying, well, I'm gonna this one's gonna be tight. So you are you gravitating towards a certain group of typefaces that are space economic and uh, economical. And then you're also sort of saying, well, let's see how that really looks. And you, you print out a lot of test pages and try to get a feel for what is, what is comfortable to read. Um, and so that's, that's, as I said, that's 60, 70% of the job. And then the other part is sort of the, the interpretive or the creative overlay where you're trying to convey some sense of the book, some sense of the actual content of the mm. book. Um, and this is where it overlaps with cover designers, because that's, that's, that's 98% of what cover designers are trying to do. They're trying to tell you this is a, you know, this is a fancy novel, or this is political nonfiction, or this is textbook, 
and all those different types of books have kind of cover design attitudes, I guess, or styles that mm-hmm. that kind of convey some conceptual idea about what the book is about. So in the interior, you don't really interpret to that level, but you mm-hmm. do, depending on the book, you do more or less of that sometimes. Um, right. Most books, most books, you know, if it's if it's uh, you know a biography of Lyndon Johnson, there's not a lot typographically to say about that. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> not like a, a central visual metaphor that you need to play out through your chapter headings to convey Lyndon Johnsonness, you know, or strife in the sixties. Um, right. I wouldn't even I mean, you say. you could, but that would be a different kind of book. It would be a different kind of book, and it's also then it, then you're talking about how intrusive can the designer be on the reader's experience? Right. And for a book jacket designer, they can be, they're totally, not intrusive, but they're they're the first interpreters of the content of the book. They're telling the reader, here's, here's a picture of Lyndon Johnson. You know what this book's about. Uh, you know, right. Dark, moody picture because it's a critical biography, or it's a bright and sunny picture because it's, you know, it's a gloss over. But right. you can't, on the interior, you you it, you would be intruding on the reader's experience every moment that they were reading the book, as opposed to when they were just looking at the outside. And so, yeah, you can't really, use that like Halloween font to show that it's an upsetting book. Exactly, you know um, that one that, that looks just, like Dracula. It's like you can't yeah. you can't set a book in that one. It'd be like. It, it, feels, it starts to feel like a Spielberg movie, you know, when they're like, the soundtrack is like, you will feel sad now. Like, you can't exactly. do that with type. Exactly. You, you, that's an excellent example because you can do that with type in the right context. You do want to use the Halloween font to convey Halloween. But right. that doesn't mean you can convey scariness the rest of the year using that font. You know, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean scariness. Right. It just means Halloween. So Right. And even with, it, like, with the books, say, about Lenny Johnson, which I just kind of picked at random, but, like, there are 60s typefaces, but yes. if you were to use a 60s typeface in a book, a history of the 60s, it would get kind of corny kind of quick. Yeah. And it, you would be saying this is not a serious history, this is a pop culture history. That might be okay if it is a pop culture history. Or if it's a but, coffee table book. Exactly. So that's why I say there's more or less conceptual interpretation on the interior of a book, depending on the book. Um, for most most books that are text, you know, novels, short stories, nonfiction, uh, you know, non-illustrated books, um, there's kind of this concept of the crystal goblet, which comes from a short essay by Beatrice Ward, which basically, you know, is the first thing that every type class reads is this essay, and it's basically the concept that typography should be the crystal goblet into which you pour the wine, and which is so clear and almost non-existent that you can pure, Mm. you're purely enjoying the wine, and not the beauty of the goblet. And so, you are trying as as an interior book designer to basically be transparent to the meaning of the text for the reader. You're not trying to say, this is a scary book, look at the scary font, now read it. You know, you're basically <laughs> saying, you know, there's a chapter heading and, and, you know, you're designing a system of typographical elements that are, that are consistently oriented so that the reader can always understand what's going on in the text, and then you're out of the way. Um, right. That's kind of kind you, of the thinking. Mm-hmm. Do you find like even so, which is that's really interesting. But I mean, I think that makes sense as a goal. And mm-hmm. at the same time, do you find that like the shape of the goblet, maybe if it's even if it's transparent, changes in terms of like you don't want to use a very sixty font now. But are there through through the decades, you know, ways in which looking back, you realize font choices feel kind of dated and they're they've gone out of style. I mean, I'm thinking of movies like. When you see a movie, the one in particular, for whatever reason I think of, is the Great Gatsby version with um, with Mia Farrow. 
Like, looking okay. back on that movie, they thought they were doing, like, 20s costumes, and it was really period yep. appropriate. But you look back at it, you're like, damn, that looks late 70s, you know? Yeah. It's like a oh, late totally. 70s veneer over that historical thing. And I think that happens no matter what, because you can't see it because of the area you're in. Does that happen with type choices where you can look at a book and be like, I bet that was set in, like, the 80s? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, there are there are definitely uh, trends in in graphic design in general, and certainly just in type choice within book interiors. Um, mm-hmm. Not just the choice of font, but then the setting of it, how you how you lay it out on the page. Um, you know, and, and in the '70s, all the letters were set so close together that they were almost touching. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this is true. This is my theory, but that was that became a trend because the technology suddenly allowed that to be possible. Um, ah. In other words, you couldn't have metal type that really touched easily. Right. You had to, but when you when they transferred to film, you could have letters touch just because you were not manipulating physical material in the same way. And so it just right. was like, it's possible, let's do it. It's different from how it was before. And, and you also look technologically advanced. Like, look exactly. how fancy we are. Yeah, and so now, of course, it looks kind of dated to us that you see these things that are, like, super touching. But um, uh-huh. but then, you know, it, that there was sort of a backlash of that, and so there's a lot of stuff, you know, the early 90s where um, we were all, everything was getting really spaced out or not mm. tracked out, which is what which is like kerning, except you, you spaced out the entire line or the entire word. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of like words that, stre- you know, three letter words that stretched across the entire width of the page or, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, three letter words like and three letter words. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Three, you know, words of different length taking up the same amount of width, um, all these kinds of things. Uh, and that was easy to do with the computer in a new way. Like it was one click of a, of a set. Uh. Um, so, I think you're exactly right that, that, you know, every period does its recreation of earlier periods in its own telling way. Um, right. The difference a little bit now is that it is easier for us to really imitate earlier periods because you can scan something and right. trace it and and just literally recreate it. Um, so you do, I mean, this is a whole problem of, postmodern period and all this sort of oh, yeah. culture is like you know do we have any originality anymore or are we just yeah. using previous things um, and uh, that's true in, in a lot of things obviously not just design but um, yeah, fashion film music all of it but yeah, yeah it starts to be like oh I like the 40s I'm just going to do everything 40s and, and then you don't think yeah. about what do I want to do that's pushing the envelope yeah yeah so you 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 definitely can look at a book and tell its period, you know, usually I would say roughly based on kind of its style, not just type choice, but mm-hmm. you know, is it is it are the pages symmetrical or asymmetrical? Um what's the proportion of white space or, or margins? Um mm-hmm. there's sort of large periods, you know, there's classical period, and then there's neoclassical period, and then the modernist period, which is still so influential, you know, it's like what we think of as basically Bauhaus style books with standard typefaces for text, and lots of, um, either lots of grids, and lots of columns, etc. You can tell, you can still kind of tell, you know, an original 1930s Bauhaus book from a copy of it today, but the copies are pretty good, pretty good too. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, the question for designers today is usually which style am I appropriating to, to communicate some idea? Exactly. So, and as someone who does user inter- user experience design, mm-hmm. how much, it, it sounds like, I mean, we're talking about the whole purpose of a book is for someone to read it, I mean, presumably. And... There are all these considerations even before. Like, how much of the time are you thinking? I mean, you're not going to choose wingdings, obviously, as a font, but mm-hmm. 
how, how much of it is thinking, how is someone going to feel about reading this? How is this going to impact their reading experience? Is that something that people really think about, or is it all about we've got to print it in this number of pages, and it has to look a certain way, and, oh, well, they're just going to read it, how they read it? Um, or, how you know, do, I guess that's one question. Yeah. And the other one is, has there been any research or any any sort of, I guess, reaction or impact of thinking about, do people take in information more effectively or enjoy reading more with certain kinds of design versus others? Um, well, for the latter question, I don't really know. I think there has been mm-hmm. a lot of research, but I would never, I couldn't presume to describe it. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's, you know, for, for book designers, there's research about um, readability of typefaces. Which is mm-hmm. to say, you're just your I often get the readability and legibility confused, but readability, I believe, what I think, what I mean to say is your ability to recognize a letter and therefore absorb it as its proper meaning versus right. legibility, which is more of the higher level of I'm understanding the overall. I'm totally garbling this, I'm sure. <laughs> um, no, it's fine. So, I think, yeah, but, but is it, are you able to digest this font, basically? Yeah, I think there there definitely is research about, you know, sans serif typefaces versus serif typefaces in terms of the retention of what you read, um, the ability to recognize certain kinds of numbers versus others, uh, italics versus Roman, all these things. That, to get into your, then to bleed over into your first question, I don't, I don't, I'm not up on all that research, and it was never really a concern at any design phase of my design life, because for books, it's, the reading experience is actually pretty straightforward. Um, okay. It's kind of solved, as you would say. Like, right. with UX, with digital user experience design, like, who knows where people think they're supposed to tap on something, and, and how do we get somebody to swipe when they should be dragging, and all those right. things are still new, nascent behaviors. And so that's the complexity of, of digital design. But with a book, right. you're, you're never like saying, how are we going to get people to understand where to start reading? <laughs> you know, that, that problem has been solved a long time ago. Right. Um, and yeah, there are, the only course, is if you suddenly read a Japanese book and you're supposed to start at the back. But if you speak Japanese, right. you probably know that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there are interesting, you know, there's always been interesting experiments with these things. And, and um, you know, one of my favorites is a book uh, by a French writer from, I think, the 60s, Marc Saporta, wrote a book called Composition Number One, which is a box with 200 loose printed sheets of paper. And oh. you shuffle it, and you read it in any order you want. Um, uh-huh. And then there's... Hopscotch by Julio Cortazar, the Argentine novelist. It's really like incredibly influential book to me, which has two different sequences in which you can read it. You can either read it from the beginning straight through and end on uh-huh. page page 150, or there's a whole second section of added matter, and he gives you the order of chapters, and you can jump back and forth, hopscotching across the book. Physically. Oh wow! Um, and all of that is author user experience design. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> the book yeah. designer had had no control. The book designer still had to do what they're told. Like, okay, you know, we're going to cut these pages into individual sheets. This text goes on right. one sheet. This goes on another sheet. The designer's like, got it. <laughs> um, but so the author is still the director, kind of. If we use some method Absolutely. and then the and then the book designer has to kind of follow their direction. I mean I think of other books like like House of Leaves or, you know, other things yep. along yep. those lines where Absolutely. there was an unusual approach to the way you read it. Yeah, and that's you, that's true. The author is and actually I would probably say that as a book designer, you are first in service to the author and second in service to the reader. In other words, the author's work is what you're dealing with, and right. you're the conduit to the reader, but 
you can't go and decide, you know what, it's dumb to have chapter titles. They look bad on the page. You know, I'm getting rid of chapter titles. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They're or, distracting. Yeah, or like, I don't like quote marks, so I'm going to use M dashes to indicate dialogue. You know, Right, a, I think that looks a, cool, yeah. Yeah, well, if you're an author, that's your choice. But if you're a book designer, that's not your choice. Um, yeah. So you are recasting the, the material that's already been decided is in the book. And you are, again, basically the idea is to, you know, in a crystal goblet sense, transmit this to the reader so that they can, they can have a relationship with the author and their intentions without your mediation. And with the book, right. House of Leaves, and there's another one um, by Reed Larson, his first book, it's The Journals of T.E. Spivet or something, something like that. It's Reed Larson, um, where they're beautifully designed books and very intricate. The design and the narrative are very intricately connected. Those are basically designed by the author. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of an outlier on that spectrum is something like The Life and Time of Tristram Shandy, where mm-hmm. if you're going to design that book, you need to follow Lawrence Stern's intentions of we're going to do a lot of weird stuff, design stuff, inside mm-hmm. this narrative. And the design it's a great book to design because like the designer has a lot of interpretive power to say, well, here's mm-hmm. how we're going to Here's how we're going to do this thing that, that this section of, of that book. Um, so it's, and Shandy, that's a, you know, it's an old, old book. And so there's always been these experiments. Um, Jonathan Safran Foer has done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he doesn't design his own books. I think it was the second book. It was it incre- extremely loud and incredibly close. Mm-hmm. It had a page that basically like condensed into just black ink. Um, mm. And that's the kind of thing where you basically, um, the author would annotate that or in some way create that in their manuscript, and then there would be a conversation about how to design it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the designer would not be on their own to just figure it out, but, you know, the intention would be transmitted um, from the author to the designer. But it always yeah. starts, always starts with the author. Um so, yeah, it's very different. I mean, user experience for reading, it's um, on a very technical level. It's not, I'd say it's pretty pretty well understood. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, certainly when you're just doing a straight, a straight novel, yeah, yeah. Um, so how did you transition from doing book design to more digital process? And have you ever dealt with digital reading, like, you know, the way that digital books are designed? Uh, definitely, I have not um, uh-huh. dealt with digital books, and I'm not even totally clear on, the te- like, how what software is used to make an ebook because um, it has its own I'm not format. sure either, because it kind of, I mean, in a way, like, all of the book designer's work is lost in that, because you can pick, if you want a different font to read, as yeah. a reader, you can change yeah. the font size, you can change what the type is, and there's no yeah. real, well, there's no, also, there's no financial motivation for them to be X number of pages, because who cares, they're not printing right. anything. Right. So, right. that's all lost, and then, um, you know, you just have, you can pick whatever font you want, and then you just read, and many of them don't even have pages, it's location. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you're thinking by percentage, not page number. So it's a totally different process. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's, I think it's a different group. It's a different kind of designer. It's a different group within a publishing company, as, as I understand it. Um, yeah. And I think the best, I mean, I don't, don't read on a, on a tablet in any way. I read articles off the web on Instapaper paper on my phone occasionally. But I think it's still so early that, that, Probably what's happening in the way that websites started with this whole apparatus of, you know, of the real world and of books, and there were there were pages, and uh-huh. um, you kind of 
you kind of adopted the, the tropes of books in order to understand websites. But mm-hmm. once we got once we got comfortable with websites, we were free to like have Twitter, which is just a homepage with a, an endless stream of tweets, and you know, and Facebook is just a feed, and we no longer mm-hmm. need pages, and we don't nobody bookmarks anymore, and um, so we're kind of moving into a, a thing that's more natively web, where the experience mm-hmm. is understood that like oh now. We all know what it means to go to a website in a browser. We don't need to say, like, go to the home page. We just say, go to, you know, go to Google. Right. And that's a site. It's not a page. And so it's, it's becoming right. more natively digital. And I think what's, what's probably going to happen is a similar thing with the digital reading experience, where it does disassociate from the printed book. I mean, uh-huh. it's happening because you don't have pages, you just have locations. But right. in a design sense, that will happen too, where a printed book is fixed once it's printed. And yeah. digital things aren't, and so that's the big dissociation. He's like, you're not designing this book in this typeface. You're designing this text in this container. Um, uh-huh. And, and you're maybe just formatting it. Like, these things should come up no matter what font the reader chooses. This yep. should be a heading. And these are links from the chapter, the, you know, the table of contents at the beginning to a certain location in the text. But it's yep. not about margins, and it's not about the way the page looks. Because you have no yep. control over that anymore. Exactly. Um, and those, those, um, those formatting things are what the copy editor does when they say, okay, this is a chapter title, we'll code this as CT. This is, um, you know, first paragraph of a chapter, that's CT1. This is a verse okay. extract, that's V. Those codes are, again, that list of elements the designer designs, but that also is a list of elements that would, would still digitally need to be retained and represented in order okay. to retain the author's intentions. But right. there's just the physicality of it goes away. Um, yeah, and I think it will be interesting to see what that means because I've already read things that you don't retain information in the same way uh-huh. reading when you're reading because yeah yeah when you're reading a physical book because I always can kind of remember but I may be one of these people like I think it was on a right hand page that this quote yep. that I want to go back <laughs> to versus yep. the left hand like I always remember that stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know if everyone is like that. But you, of course, you can't be like, well, it was on this reader that I read it. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Kindle I'm reading on. It's not yeah. like, well, I clicked the page. Like, they're all the right-hand page, like, or the left-hand, depending yeah, on how you totally. think about it. So there's yeah. – all of that physicality is gone, and I don't think we really know yet what the impact will be. Do you remember on the web, when you're reading websites, do you remember where you read something? Where on the page? No, like – or even, like, in other words, what you were t- retaining what you read when you're reading on a website and a browser on your laptop. Uh-huh. Is that also hard to remember in the same way for you? Yeah, like, if I, I will have trouble remembering, like, I'll read an article because I read stuff in a number of places. So I'll read stuff mm-hmm. in Feedly, you know, I have a bunch of blogs that I collect there. So mm-hmm. that's just an information channel. And then I'll read, so there are certain sites I'll go to, like, I'll go to New York Times, Book Review, or, you know, various places that I go to, or I'll Google something and I'll read a bunch of articles on it, but I won't necessarily remember where I heard it. Right. So it's harder to attribute ideas. It sort of goes into a soup versus, oh, I went into, you know, I have an office in my house with a bookshelf, and on my side of the office there's a whole bunch of writing and literature and and photography reference books, and then on Barry's side of the office there's a whole bunch of design reference books, and we got art history books all over the place from both of us, and... I'll remember which, like, oh, it was a writing book, so it must be on my side of the office, and it was probably on the second shelf. Like, I'll remember physical things right. like that. Right. Um, or yeah. the color of the book, or, you know, things like that that are just not, there is no reference point like that on a website. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I had that experience too, and it's very, it's all part of that. It was, I want to find a sentence on a left-hand page near the top. Yeah. thing. That you're losing when you read digital 
because there's no space, there's no physicality. So, I, and their I paragraphing doesn't happen the same way either, because I'll remember like it was a long paragraph that that was in, right. or it was its own paragraph, or that yeah. kind of thing. And you don't have that online because people don't like long paragraphs. I mean, I get it too. Like I'll go to a website and it'll be this really long paragraph, you know, that looks like yeah. Henry James or something, and I'm like, oh man, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> it yeah. makes me feel lazy and terrible, but. That's something, yeah. I mean, obviously it's the author who decides how long their paragraphs and their sentences are, but I'm much more likely to read a long paragraph in a physical book than I am yeah. in any kind of digital context. Yeah, and I actually, I think maybe this is all good news for books, physical books, because, mm -hmm. you know, the publishing industry has been terrified that they're going to dry up and nobody's going to read physical books, but basically it may sort out, and it may take a long time, but it may sort out that, oh, we have digital formats for nuggets and lists and BuzzFeed and Facebook. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we still want to read a novel. And the best way to read a novel is still in a book. And mm -hmm. we're, we're in a phase right now of thinking maybe the best way to read a novel is, is in a tablet because I can carry 100 around and it doesn't weigh yeah. any more than five. And we're sort of in a phase now of like, maybe this is better, but it may turn out that actually because of this whole like relationship to the text that you have physically, it may turn out that books are better. <laughs> you know, we just don't all believe it yet. Um, I think there's going to be some kind of, yeah, it'll be a back and forth because you look at something like, I remember, I mean, I'm showing my age, but I remember when like you go on a trip, everything was about going on a trip. I think trips sort of define media. Because it's like, remember when you had to pick, like, how many tapes or how many CDs you could bring? And it was, like, a big thing. Like, oh, I'm going to camp yeah. or I'm going away on vacation. And, like, I have those clamshell CD cases. And it's like, well, I only have two yeah. of them. So once sure. I fill this up, I can kind of put two in some of the slots if I really want to have more. But it's like, am I bringing Joshua Tree or am I bringing, right. you know, Tom Petty or whatever? Like, who's going to get the, who's going to make the cut? And then yeah. suddenly you have an iPod. And it's like, who gives a shit? It's all on there. And yeah. Yeah. bring all of it. And then I think there was a little bit of that. The reason I bought a Kindle, there were two things that happened. And one was I was at a conference in Las Vegas, and I was in the hotel, and I, I don't know what I was thinking. I only brought one book. I've never done this before or since. And I finished it the first night I was there. And I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I called the front desk. I was staying at the Venetian. And I said, where's the bookstore in the Venetian? Because they have a whole mall, you know, downstairs. Sure. And they said, yeah. oh, there, there isn't one. And, and I said, what do you mean? And I was so confused. I mean, you can imagine. I was just like, what? Mm -hmm. And then I said, well, where is it on the strip? They're like, there is no bookstore on the strip. I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you're going to need a car. And it, this mm -hmm. was years ago. I did not know until mm -hmm. much later that there is an amazing bookstore in Vegas, actually, which you had a lot to do with. Um, yes. It's called Writer's Block, which everyone, if you're in Vegas and you're a book person and you're freaking out, it feels really overwhelming, just go to Writer's Block. It's the best. Yep. Um, yeah. Thank you, Sam, for helping to find that puppy because it is a gorgeous beast. But um, well, that is that's. But, so I was just like, I can't ever be stranded somewhere without a book ever again. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. And the other thing was, I would travel with a suitcase, and I had to keep paying overage fees because there were so many books in my suitcase. <laughs> and I went to visit yeah. my dad, and he insisted on carrying my suitcase up for me. And he was like, Jesus, when he picked it up, I was like, I'm going to kill my dad. I'm going to kill my dad. I have so. <laughs> Those two experiences said you have to get some kind of e-reader. And there is something very liberating about getting on a plane with just a purse and not like a rolling suitcase full of books. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but when I'm at home, I don't have that same feeling. Oh, and the other thing, given that I went to graduate school for psychology, and you can say something about the design on this one, which is why this may be, have been a trend when I was in grad school, but it seems like every book that I was reading for psychology grad school, which had titles like Never Good Enough, the, the, <laughs> the type treatment on the cover was always like two-inch high letters. And so I'd be on an airplane flying home reading a book entitled Never Good Enough <laughs> in full view. And oh, yeah. a, a digital reader is you can read Never Good Enough and nobody knows that you're reading Never Good Enough. Like you right. can read whatever right. you want and no one has to know. Yeah, so I'm sure the self-help industry is loving the digital interface because everybody is perfectly happy to read books about whatever. Probably, like, erotica and, and self-help are doing real well with the digital. 
Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that you had, during the height of it, you had people reading Fifty Shades of Grey on the subway in New York City, and, like, totally acceptable to read to read erotica out in public in that case, but, yeah. you know, I don't think you was, you didn't see anybody else, any, any other books being read in that way, so, but maybe that's happening yeah. in Kindle, it's true. Yeah. You don't know yeah, what somebody's reading when you see a Kindle, they're like, are you reading Never Good Enough? What's going on in there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of foolish to lament the things that we're losing with all this stuff going on, but, like, I've had experiences where I was reading on the road on the subway in New York years ago, and um, because I was holding the book and this guy could see the cover, he came up to me and he's like, I fucking hated that book. That book is garbage. <laughs> it was so worked up, and it was, it was hilarious because I was sort of like, as I was reading, I was a little on the fence, too. I'm like, are these guys assholes, or is this, is this really that good a book? And so, yeah. <laughs> he, sorry? Yeah, no, go for it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he, like, he was just, he ranted for just a second, and then he ran off the train. But, like, <laughs> that that was, you know, that might have been 20 years ago, almost. Um, yeah. And it was a really memorable interaction, just born of physical, um, you know, the physical existence of the book. And, you know, the other right. story of that, of course, is seeing people, there might even be a Tumblr of this, of, like, seeing people read Infinite Jest with two bookmarks in them. And, oh. like, you know, when you, you kind of see somebody with a book with two bookmarks, you're like, oh, yeah, Infinite Jest. And, you know, you can't, <laughs> can't do that. can't do that. On, you, don't, you don't have any of that sharing, um, you know, um, you don't have any, you don't have anybody re- reading the same book in a cafe and knowing and kind of having a, a kinship if they're reading a, books without covers. So, I don't know. No, it's, um, I mean, I remember reading The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo on an airplane and mm-hmm. sitting next to somebody who then took their book out who was also reading Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah. <laughs> the period when everybody was reading that. And yeah. I was flying back east to visit a friend and they told me, oh, if you like that book, Bangkok 8 is even better. And I loved Bangkok 8 and ended up recommending it to tons of people, all of whom have loved it. So there is a conversation. So I think to pick up on the, like, audio thing where, okay, we have no, you know, you have to bring your 12 CDs on your vacation and now you can bring all of them. It seems like there's been a backlash in a way where people are, like, really into records again now. And yeah. Record stores are kind of coming back. So it feels like, okay, yes, we were really liberated and we have this digital availability, but now there's this return to like, oh, but they sound so good when it's a record. And I wonder if the same thing will happen with books because you see, you know, everyone was like liberated by the format and you can carry all these books with you. But then you look at Instagram and there's whole, I mean, I have one too, Bookstagram accounts where you're like taking pictures yeah. of the books you're reading and you see hot dudes reading that whole thing of hot guys reading books on the subway yeah. in New York, yeah. which is the yeah. best. And yeah. um, so that's, I mean, and none of them, are, I think once they've had a Kindle that I've seen, but it's always a physical book. Right. So I think right. there is still, it's almost becoming more of like an art object or a, a precious object in the way like a record is. That may be what book is? books. Yeah, I think people are like, oh, I love the feeling of a physical book. I'm never going to give up bookstores. I mean, I love the smell. I love the whole thing. It's like an open-air mm-hmm. crack den for me in there. Um, <laughs> it's like I can't be trusted. So I think, I think that the, the, the design element is never going to go away because people like to see. Yeah. It's like, you know, you buy a record, you can see the whole cover art versus you have a tiny little icon on your, oh, on your iPad. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we're definitely, the, the, you know, the Chronicle Books model of, you know, design at the forefront of the, and the objectness of the, at the forefront of their whole publishing mission is, is not going away. Like that Chronicle has mm-hmm. been around through this whole digital transition and I don't know if they're doing better and worse than they always have been, but they're still around, which mm-hmm. says a lot. And I mean, publishers like, like Fiden is, Fiden is a total mystery to me because those books are so expensive to make. And yeah, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. And even like the expense of 
the difference in size of a book has a, a really dramatic effect on expense to produce, and yet they mm-hmm. publish ginormous books that are oh, you know, an inch and a half thick. And so there is obviously still an industry and a market for the, the I don't know what you call it, a trophy book, like the book that, the beautiful book that you don't have to read, or that you, the or book that you can Or coffee table, scan. or it's an art book, or, because I remember yeah. looking at books too, like six or seven years ago, and we had books like a book on Valentino, you know, that were three inches thick, and those books were thousands of dollars a piece. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, and, and yeah. stuff like, there was Biden, and there was, you know, Rizzoli books that are also really beautiful and Asseline and, you know, all those publishers that just do ginormous books. Yeah. And there's, you know, stuff where it's like, there was one I particularly wanted and never got, which I still regret, but it was a big one on maps, like old medieval maps, and just seeing them that large was incredible. And, you know, it's a whole different experience with a giant book. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's there's definitely an argument to be made that certain subjects just just can't be handled, you know, digitally on a tiny little four by six tablet, you know, mm-hmm. three color settings, or you know, even if you're even an iPad or something, you just can't. You're just not going to have the proper appreciation, and it's going to turn you off from the subject matter, probably. Um, yeah, you won't be able to look. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the 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 thing is that still leaves the novel kind of in trouble, but I don't know, I, I feel like I have such a, we all have such a problem with tabs in the browser, you know, where you can yeah. endlessly open tabs and like, oh, I gotta read this and I gotta read this. Every time yeah. you sit down to, to Twitter or Facebook, that's six more articles that have been linked to that you've gotta open tabs for. And gotta read, read it, yeah. Yeah. And so, the, that feeling of things piling up, when you then go to read a tab, I get you know, I get very, not very far into a given tab that I need to read before I've got to go on to the next one because I know I've got yeah. 15 more things. And so the right. this constant digital distraction of like, let me get the gist of this and move on to that, and all the other ones are always looming. Whereas with books, I always have the opposite experience, which is once I've, you know, here's here's... 10 novels that I'm going to read next on my shelf, and I pick this one, and that's the commitment to read that one. And it actually uh-huh. eliminates that feeling of looming that you have with tabs. And you're right. like, this is it for now, and you commit, and I, you know, I tend to like, it's, I tend to try to read the entire book before switching <laughs> versus uh-huh. giving up in the middle if I don't like it. It's only recently that I've finally given up on books that I don't like. But oh, that's a whole so, thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's so much, once you get a physical book, you get into this physical object, it, it has this odd experience for me, at least, of eliminating the pressure of all those other things that I, mm-hmm. of course, could also be reading. And I could be reading five of them at once, except that I don't like to read that way. But I do read that way on the web for whatever reason. And so, no, it's true because there's an un, yeah. it's like there's an unlimited source. It doesn't take up space. I mean, we are a bad example in my house because we organized all of our books in categories. We just had to take in another ginormous bookcase yesterday. Because <laughs> uh, hypothetically, you could say there's no more room at the end. We're not buying any more books. And we've said that at least twelve times, and we keep buying books. But yeah, there is a little bit of a like, oh my god, I wish I could go to Ireland for a month and just take a steamer trunk full of these books and just read them all. But but there is. It's like I, I will read – I'm not quite as disciplined as you. I will read no more than three books at a time because I will read a fiction book, a nonfiction book, and an audio book. But yeah. that's it and because I yeah. can't really fully devote attention to them um, if I'm reading more than that. Right. They, but why I can not? keep them separate in my head. Okay. But, but like – is there some something about fiction that to read three book three three novels at once would be too too jumbled? I think I just would. It, I really like to commit to the world of the novel, 
And if I'm, I could listen to an audio novel and read a novel on paper at the same time, but I couldn't right, right. read more than one paper novel or listen to more than one novel at the same time because I guess if they were right. really, really different, like if one was kind of a, like a slightly abstract kind of like a Rachel Cusk outline kind of book, and another yeah. one was like a historical novel about, I'm reading one right now about George Sand. Like, I probably wouldn't have difficulty with that, but I don't think I would enjoy either of them as much if I was reading them both at the same time. Because I like right. to really drop into that world and enjoy yeah. it and really kind of drift off. And if I'm reading a two at the same time, then it distracts and it, it starts to, I'm cutting in and out of, of the experience. But a nonfiction book at the same time doesn't really do that for me because if it, I, I probably would have trouble with like a really narrative mem a memoir and a novel at the same time, but right. it's usually think, something yeah. sort of informative nonfiction. And if I, I treat memoir a little bit more like novel, probably. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's a, I mean, audiobooks gets into a whole other thing of, like, that's, what kind of experience is that? <laughs> you know, everybody's mm -hmm. like, did I read an audiobook, or did I, what did I do? <laughs> what did you even, <laughs> yeah. <did> you even say? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I yeah. would say I listen to it on audio. I mean, there, that is a whole different thing. I mean, yeah, obviously we're away from the type and design, but at that point, it's, there are certain narrators that I love, and there are certain – I tend to get into certain genres and certain series of books, like the Rivers right. of London book, um, which is – the first book is Midnight Riot in the U.S., but it's mm -hmm. a series about a police officer in London, and it kind of goes into a supernatural kind of element. Huh. But uh -huh. it's very – accurate about London and the London police force from everybody I know, and I know so many British people who love this series, um, but it's like, oh, it's totally accurate about London, except the magic part. <laughs> right. Um, right. Like, the magic Nothing. part, maybe not, but the rest of it is really right on, like, about how people feel about cops, and he talks, the, the narrator um, talks a lot about, like, well, this is what you have to do with a cop, and this is how people react, and dealing with drunk people in bars, and, you know. He still has to do all that stuff. Um, but the narrator's voice is so sexy that I have to listen to it on audio. I think he oh, sounds I like see. Idris yeah. Elba. It's like Idris Elba narrating this book. I'm like, of course. And anything that um, – I listened to Stardust by Neil Gaiman, and I don't understand why they ever, ever have anyone but Neil Gaiman read his books in audio. Huh. Neil Gaiman yeah. has, like, one of the best narrating voices out there. I will listen to huh. read the phone book. Um, <laughs> so that's one piece of it, and it's pretty much always fiction, although I did listen to Devil in the White City, and that was great. Yeah. Who was, was um, that a narrator, or was that, that was the yeah, it was, story? It, it was Scott Brick was a really good narrator, but it just worked as, it was like someone was telling me this crazy story, yeah. and that worked. So I think the narrator, in a way, is sort of the equivalent of the interior type design, because <laughs> they're I mean, it, interpreting. It's yeah, it's certainly an aesthetic choice. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. You obviously don't have the experience of like, oh, I was, you know, I want to go. My, I lost my place right here at the, you know, the middle of the right hand page, halfway through the book. <laughs> You've got to be yeah. like, well, I was, I was at, you know. Tang's donuts when I when he was mentioning this thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can't find your way. No, I always remember where I was. I was like, oh, I was parking at the library, and they were in that part of the story. Like it's very, it, it's always a physical yeah. location, but it has nothing to do with the physical location in the book. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of research to be done on this whole physical connection that you have to to you know mental experience, whether it's listening. Yeah. Or, reading or whatever, but I don't know. I'm not sure I would read that stuff either. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, maybe we could do a study that would be interesting and then put it out there. I mean, there could also be a study about how type design, in some ways, in certain books, seems like it's becoming more a part of the book so that people will want the physical book. I wonder if that's a strategy mm -hmm. in the face of physical, because I'm thinking of a book like Essentialism by George, uh, 
what is his first name? Is it George McEwen? I know his last name is McEwen. But oh. that whole book, the way it's laid out and designed, really has a lot to do with the way they're communicating the material. And I uh, used to okay. have a physical book. I, ha- I got a galley of it, I think, when I was working at BookSoup or something. And then I lent it to somebody and I never got it back. And now I'm just like, I can't want to buy that book again because I love that book as an object. And I wonder if people are starting to think about that in how they do type design in books because to make people want the book rather than a digital version. I don't know if that's part of it. Or, I mean, that was oh. pretty clearly the author also, but mm-hmm. that might have been Chronicle's idea too. It was like, we just have to make books that people want to own the book. Oh, no question. I mean, I don't, I don't know essentialism, but there's absolutely mm-hmm. a strategy in publishers to do books as desirable objects. And mm-hmm. you know, that is everything from the decision to do a paperback or a hardcover or, you know, the niceties of, of hardcovers, like having a little, you know, ribbon as a page marker mm-hmm. or stamping on the cover or fancy mm-hmm. treatments, die cuts or whatever to the jacket. Um, a lot of it has to do with size, you know, the smaller it is sometimes, the more precious it is. Um, right. You know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of problems with size in terms of standardizing production. And, right. you know, the publishers get deals from printers or have agreements with printers that, you know, vintage paperbacks uh, are all the same size, every single one. Mm-hmm. And that's because that's a, you know, it's a printer's template, essentially. Um, and there's, you know, there's just economic reasons for standardizing that. But then printer uh, publishers diverge from that all the time in order to make special things, whether it's, you know... Um, uh, it's sometimes it's done with the design, but sometimes it's done with the object. You know, I mean, with the design, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we're going to put out a new series of uh, Philip Roth, you know, Philip Roth novels, all with the same design. You know, we'll give the sort of series right. treatment to a given author. That's just design. Or Penguin did this really cool thing a few years ago where they hired uh, different illustrators like Chris Ware and Adrian Tomine to do uh, sort of high-end paperbacks where they were paperbacks that had a flap on the jacket, and then they mm-hmm. were uh, deckled edge, which is the rough yeah. edge of pages on the facing the facing edge. Um, so they were, and some of them were even foil stamped, which is pretty fancy for a paperback. And so that's they a little bit more the like... They did that with the first series as well, too, right? Where they had a different mm-hmm. translator for each volume of first. Um yeah. And those are really beautiful. Yeah, these are all, like, clearly design-driven by making objectives. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, not to be cynical about it, but, like, you know, to re- one of these Penguin classes was Candide by Voltaire. Mm-hmm. And, like, there's no reason, there's not a lot of people just buying Candide off the shelf to, to read it. It's like, i got to get around to reading that finally. Except yeah. that, like, oh, I'm a huge Chris Ware fan. I'm going to buy the Chris Ware Candide. Um, right. So, the, you know, the, the positive spin on that is it's design-driven thinking and it's employing illustrators and it's using any means, including visual design, to encourage people to read books. And I'm, I'm totally in favor of all of that. Um, yeah. But it's... Definitely, you know, definitely strategic on the publisher's part. And, um, you know, I mean, the backlist for most publishers is incredibly important um, because people know these books. People feel like they have to read these books or at least buy them, have them on their shelves. And um, that's part of the industry, I think. Um, Absolutely. And it's super fun for designers incredibly <laughs> yeah. incredibly great if you can do a whole you know a whole edition I mean there's the, then there's been fantastic ones lately everything from um, uh, the Kafka series that Peter Mendelssohn did and he just he and Oliver Monday they're both designers at, at Knopf just did um, an Italo Calvino series it's they're just oh, both I love fantastic. Yeah, I'm reading yeah. Calvino now. It's pretty, pretty great. Um, it's so good. And it, yeah, it's, it's 
I mean, he's, the, I'm reading this on Winter's Night of Traveling, which is all about his, I his love really, that book. Yeah, it really is about the physicality of books and, like, the problems of making books. <laughs> yeah. Um, taken to very metaphysical levels, but... Um, totally. I love that book. But, yeah, all those, but, again, all those series of, of, of things are super fun for designers. This is all for jacket designers, not for the interior. Oftentimes they don't right. redo, redo the interior. Um, oh, wow. But, yeah, most of them, you know, like, you open them up and they kind of look photocopied. The type looks a little <laughs> rough. And that's... Yeah. Because it almost has... It essentially has been photocopied. <laughs> wow. From its original that's so film. interesting. Um, so this is a yeah. sneak activity people can do, is take one of these new fancy editions and find the, the you know, the Barnes & Noble version and see... Yeah, yeah. Is the type looking a little bit suspiciously similar to an older version? That's an insider, oh, an insider you can, tip. You can tell that it's the same exact setting, as they say. I mean, it's mm -hmm. the same typeface, the same. You just basically look at any two identical pages, and it's the same word in the same top corner. Wow. So they're the same thing. Amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you don't even have to know which typeface or recognize the typeface. It's just if the words are in the same place... It's the same. It's the same film, you know. As you would say, it's like it's like having the same word document, but it's not. It's yeah. film from how they were made. Um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. This is like a lot of amazing information, and I'm so uh, sure. happy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about all this. I definitely learned a lot, and I know we're gonna have a very hefty show notes section on this one with all kinds of book links for people to look at. I'm like, ooh, we're going to have fun putting that together. So yeah, well, this thank one will you. definitely have a longer post uh, than some of the others where we're just talking to an author of one book. So this is great. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to, uh, pleasure to do it, and I uh, certainly enjoyed it. And as we watch the book world unfold, maybe we'll have you back and say, Sam, what do we think about this development? Um, uh yeah. VR design commentator. <laughs> I, yeah, I, it's just too bad I'm not, not as much of a book designer as I used to be, but, uh, it was, you know, it's my first kind of design that I ever did, so it's always been, you know, real important. Um, it's led on to, to further greatness, so I think, <laughs> I think it's informed the whole process, which is awesome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. You can now also listen to the show on iTunes. If you've enjoyed listening, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a review, or passing the show on to a friend. You can find show notes for these episodes and future episodes at secretlibrarypodcast.com. To stay up to date about new shows coming out, subscribe to Footnotes, my newsletter at carolinedonahue.com. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. 